in my teacher's footsteps, Chapter Four, read by Nick Scott. Our group of pilgrims have set off for Humla in western Nepal, where their walk will begin, following Ajang Sumedho's route over the Himalayas to Tibet. Chapter Four: The Joy of Being on the Path. That flight into Simikont, so wonderful! A small two-engine gnat of a plane. The Himalayas on such a grand scale that we flew through mountain valleys rather than above them, looking out at forested slopes, with villages hanging on hillsides and cascading waterfalls, rather than down at them. Ajahn Amra and I sitting in the front seats, able to see the pilot's view ahead through the open cockpit door, heading straight at a grey-blue rocky cliff that emerged from the forest. Then banking and turning to open up another vista of the valley's further reaches, the loud engine drone and the plane's vibration gave the sense that we were some insect, born on whirring wings, through a landscape sized for it. I'd asked the co-pilot before we started if the high peaks were visible. Afraid not. Loads of cloud today. He told me in an Aussie accent, "Didn't get a glimpse." But then, halfway there, the white swirling mass of cotton wadding above us parted. The co-pilot turned to give me a thumbs up, and there, in the distance, and so much higher, ridiculously breathtakingly so, was the main Himalayan range of gleaming white peaks, marching in a line into the far west and east. The pine-covered ridges beside us grew steadily higher, eventually obscuring that mountain vista, and then we were banking again, so close now to the narrowed valley sides. Wondering, is this village Simicot? How can we land there? Then banking once again, and before us was a terrace, set at our height on the mountain slope, its flatness incongruous amid so much verticality. Green with small wheat fields, dotted with buildings, and cut in two by a wide strip of grey tarmac. A small, tattered red and white windsock fluttered on a pole to one side. The plane had no need to descend. We just flew in, touched the tarmac, and came to a juddering stop. Exhilarated. We'd been really lucky. Roger had warned me over and again that the problem when trekking in from Simicot was this early morning flight into the mountains from Nepal Ganj, a small border town set on Nepal's narrow strip of the Ganges plain, where our jet from Kathmandu had landed. There was no road to Simicot, 
and the walking route was a week of knee-tearing ascent and descent through river chasms and over ridge after ridge. But at this time of year, with the mounting cloud of the coming monsoon, the daily flight was often postponed day after day, and all our subsequent plans would be ruined. That's why he'd insisted we add an extra three spare days at the end of our schedule. Sure enough, when we arrived the previous evening in Napurganj, we couldn't stay in our booked hotel, as it was full with people from that day's cancelled flights. Then, when we returned to the airport in the early morning, as Roger had instructed, it did no good. The first flight filled with the previous day's passengers. So we spent the morning sitting about the drab airport, waiting and hoping, as small planes from several companies came and went. Ours was called Tara Air. Ajahn Samedo had flown with Buddha Air. There's a photo of his group standing smiling in front of the plane with the name on its side. They too had been told there was little chance of a flight that day. Their plane, like ours, having flown to Simicot, had several other places to visit. The pilot decided not to fly again, Anne told me. But then at the last minute, the Joomla flight was cancelled because it was raining there and we were going. Something similar must have happened for us. Having given up hope, suddenly we were boarding. Tara Air took off and headed into the hills. Simicot didn't seem as magical once we'd landed. Several single-storey government buildings and a scattering of crude stone houses with tin roofs stood beyond the airport's dilapidated fence, through which young boys in torn clothes sneaked to pester us for money, 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 before the only policeman shooed them back out again. On our side of the fence there was a long, low reception building, fronted with a porch where our papers had to be checked. The bench, running the length of the porch, was already filled with a line of very plump, middle-class, middle-aged Indians, wearing bright nylon puffy parkas and woolen hats. The passengers from a previous flight. When I asked where they were bound, the nearest man explained, We are going on holy pilgrimage to Shiva's mountain, Great Kailash. And how will you get there? I reckon that surely they weren't going to trek into the mountains. They looked as if they'd struggled to walk a hundred metres. We are waiting for helicopter. This will take us to Hilsa on Tibet border, and from there we are taking land cruiser. Our good friend here, he pointed to a man down the bench, beyond their two portly wives, who were both munching on packets of Indian snacks. He is making holy pilgrimage before he is telling us how wonderful this holy pilgrimage is. So much auspicious. We are very much looking forward. Meanwhile, our monks were getting quietly agitated, as it steadily approached noon, when they'd no longer be able to eat because of their rules. Indra, our guide, had assured us there'd be a meal once the papers were checked. But Ajahn commented that inevitably the cooking of it would only happen once we arrived. 
We laymen weren't affected ourselves, you see, as we'd opted in Kathmandu to not keep that rule with them. I'd always done so on walks in the past, but this time the pilgrimage round Mount Kailash seemed enough of an undertaking on its own. However, Ajahn's usual wisdom in these matters proved wrong. Once we were through the bureaucracy, Indra marched us briskly up the village's steep main street to turn into a guest house where, thanks to his warning, they were expecting us with a hot meal served as soon as we were seated. Indra had been warned by Roger about the inflexibility of the Theravadan way. Simicott's fields might be relatively flat, but the track out of town wasn't. Fed and teed, we were climbing straight away, the steep main street also being the route to Tibet. It was the way to everywhere further up the Karnali Valley, in fact, wide, stony and dusty from the passing of so many feet and hooves under a hot sun. We were soon sweating, panting, and stopping often as the new altitude, nearly 3,000 metres, sapped the juice from our muscles. But I was happy to finally be underway, to be amongst these amazing mountains. The view from the top of that climb, once we'd managed to get there, and had collapsed by a crude stupor of piled rocks, was stupendous. The valley opened out to the south to reveal foothills in waves descending towards the Indian plain lost in haze. Simicot, now well below us, was a collection of small tin roofs glinting in the sun, with a small plane from another company leaving, its wings swaying as it took flight. Beyond the flat green terrace was a forested dark chasm hiding the Karnali River in its depths, while the steep pine-forested slopes opposite us rose to become ridgetops covered in snow, obscured in places with remnants of cloud. The first days on long treks are always joyous for me. It's the simplicity and freedom of being underway on the path. Even in the Himalayas, where the ups and downs are so precipitous, the physical difficulties are nothing compared to that joy. After that long climb, we plunge straight down again, sliding sometimes on the reddish dust underfoot, passing through pine woods dry and silent in the day's heat, and small clearings with occasional mud houses, Indra exchanging a few words with their owners, until eventually we were at the bottom just above the churning Kanali River. Here we were in a completely different land, oak forest, with sprawling thick-leaved rhododendrons under the deciduous trees, some of which were still coming into full leaf. The forest had been partially cleared, but dampened by the nearby river and cooled by the cool air following the rushing water down the valley, the trunks were adorned with ferns and mosses. 
Small birds twittered, flitting from branch to branch, and cicadas droned. The Canali is big, even here, well up into the mountains, and so its valley slices deep, because it comes from Tibet's higher plateau, one of few rivers to cut their way through the Himalayan wall. Each of these defiles has provided an ancient trade route into Tibet. Only two are open today, both in Nepal, as those in India have been closed by the border dispute with the Chinese. The other route has a road that now leads from Kathmandu all the way to Lhasa, but our route can still only be followed on foot. That is, unless you take the helicopter. Red and white, it clattered past every few hours, sometimes overhead, sometimes beneath us, each time flying half a dozen portly Indians up the valley or flying back down to pick up more. We sat resting against the boulders above the river, expressing our wonder at the beauty around us. Everyone seemed as happy as me. Indra had his party underway. The monks were undertaking their traditional tudong, wandering homeless. The porters were being paid to have a small adventure. Even Rory, who'd had an awful night in the Gunge, his big body far too hot in a stuffy room. I escaped to the roof and so dozy from a sleepless night that he'd lost his mobile phone in Simicot. He was now pottering about murmuring the names of familiar plants. This alpine zone was akin to our own climate. Amongst the most notable plants were the stands of Aquilegia, with their pale purple flowers like tasseled hats. I introduced Ajahn Sumedha to walking in nature like this in the summer of 1986. It was a privilege to be able to share this with the teacher who introduced me to the joy of walking the spiritual path. Venerable Anando, American and enthusiastic, then the senior monk of our small monastery in Northumberland, asked me to organise a week walking the Pennines the lumpy backbone of northern England. We started out from the monastery one summer morning, spent the first night by a lonely reservoir where we swam in the evening light, crossed the South Tyne Valley and followed the Roman wall to climb then into the Pennine Fells heading south. A week later we were at Malham in flower-spotted limestone grassland, Ajahn Samedo teasing me about something. I can't recall what, only the embarrassment I felt. There he was collected and driven back south. He'd enjoyed it so much he asked to go again the following year, this time taking Venerable Amaro, not an Ajahn then, with him. I've only a few memories now of those two walks, but several strong impressions. How easy Ajahn Samedi was to be with, not expecting anything and putting up uncomplaining with any discomfort, even with the boots that Anando had borrowed for him for his large feet, size 15 I think. They seemed to be fine when we started, but on the third day Anando, in that direct way he had, 
started to nag at Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn, your posture as you walk really needs correcting. Yes? You're leaning way over to the left. Yes? Ajahn, you should really do something about it. Silence. Ananda returned to that subject twice more before Ajahn Samedo finally replied, My right foot is excruciatingly painful because the boot is too small. His right foot was swollen from a glandular infection he'd caught in Thailand as a young monk which had given him trouble ever since. After that, Anando massaged that foot every evening and said nothing more about posture. I also recall being corrected myself by Anando. I told someone we'd met on the path that we were on a walking holiday. Anando immediately interrupted to tell them, We're on a spiritual pilgrimage. My description sounding far too lax to him. The next day, an old farmer got talking to Ajahn Sumedho. As they leant on a fence together, with me and Nando standing nearby, the farmer also asked what we were up to. We're on a walking holiday, Ajahn Sumedho replied. On those walks, we carried everything on our backs, particularly mine. I'd often hump the food for us all, as well as my own camping gear. I've always carried my gear. It keeps it simple and honest. You don't take anything that isn't necessary when you have to carry it every day. That's why I'd been reluctant to use porters for this pilgrimage. In the Himalayas in the past, I'd look with disdain at trekkers passing me on the regular trails, followed by small, knock-kneed locals laden with their excessive gear. Andrew Yates felt the same about their pilgrimage, so he'd proposed that only Ajahn Sumedho, being in his sixties, would have everything carried for him, and then agreed that Allison could do the same. The rest of the party could carry their own belongings clothes, sleeping bag, mat and anything else they wanted to bring. Though the porters could carry their tents, along with the food and other gear supplied by the travel agents, so that they could set up the camp. When porters had been mentioned for our pilgrimage, I suggested we use pack horses or mules instead, as we had in the Atlas Mountains. I knew Colin Thurbrand had done so travelling the same route. Our party is small and swift, a guide, a cook, a horseman, myself. But Roger had dismissed the notion. Only porters were possible, and my companions had no problems using them. So I'd let go of my pride, and Indra had hired three young guys in Simicot, who now walked ahead of us, bowed down with two packs each, tied together and strung by wide straps from their foreheads. I was glad I'd given in, right from my first step up the steep track leading out of Simicot. Like Ajahn Sumedho, I was now too old to carry everything. Just walking up the hill was hard enough. 
with my breath laboured, legs aching and having to stop frequently, I laboured along at the back. Just my little day pack with an extra thermal layer, waterproof jacket, water bottle and my binoculars was more than enough. At Pananula Tea Shop, Dandapaya 3, Humla, as its sign proclaimed, I bought tea for all the party. They were collapsed on the inviting, rough-hewn benches in the shade of a large tree, or sat against the establishment's mud and stone wall. The porter's loads perched on a large rock for easier relifting. One of the monks, I can't recall which, but not Ajanamro, noted cold drinks on the sign. Couldn't they have a Pepsi? I bought them one each, but refrained myself, knowing that Pepsis have to be carried in on someone's back for several days. When we came to pay, the two Pepsis cost more than two rounds of tea for ten. The monks looked chastened, and never asked for one again. Our budget was too tight. On the first part of the trek, we were amongst people who migrated long ago up this valley from the Indian plain, adapting and evolving to suit their new world. They still looked vaguely Indian, these tribes or castes of the lower mountains. Here it was the Thakari. But they are shorter, stockier, with strong bandy legs for all that climbing. The old men wear Indian-style clothes, jackets and jodhpars in unbleached cotton, stained with orange patches by the local soil, a scarf wound round their head as a turban, or, if more sophisticated, the addition of a rimless Nepali hat and perhaps a dark waistcoat. Younger men, like our porters, wear western clothes, jeans, baseball caps, sneakers. All the women, however, are traditionally garbed, colourful, long skirts, saris would never work in this terrain, and headscarves, gold rings in noses and hanging from ears, bracelets and ponderous necklaces of large semi-precious stones, lapis lazuli blue or terracotta orange. Where there's a flat bottom to the valley, small, vibrant green paddy fields line the river. They also ascend, terraced here and there onto hillsides, following a side stream and fringed with walnut trees now coming into light green leaf. There are also water buffalo. When our path emerged from the woodland onto the less steep terraced slopes, there below us were two of them, harnessed to a wooden plough, trudging through wettened earth. The rest of the terraced fields, away from water, rise up the valley sides everywhere that is not too steep, ascending way beyond our path, and are yellow-green with young wheat or barley. Not the small field we camped in that night, though. It had been set aside by a family in the adjacent house in the hope of receiving a party such as ours. We paid them a small sum for pitching each tent, but it was the provision of our meals which was their main financial reward. 
Indra was already in their house when we arrived, crouched with a woman beside the iron stove, helping to prepare tea and food. They were also Hindu. This woman had a dark red bindi dot on her forehead, and there were small white shrines amidst the fields. The one below us had a trident on its roof, indicating it was dedicated to Shiva. The small cultivated areas alternated with steeper forested slopes. Next day our path wandered through both. Amongst the fields there were wonderful views. As the path wound in and out, I was either looking up the valley to the line of our party, usually with Ajahn Amro stomping along at the front, and beyond to the forested buttresses overlapping one after another to a distant notch in the mountain wall or I was facing out, scanning the slopes opposite, spotting an eagle being pestered by ravens which climbed to swoop down on it as it hunted along a cliff, or simply gazing up at the snow-capped ridges. In the forested sections we lost the views, but were closer to wild nature, with the sweet scent of jasmine which grew twisted over boulders amidst the pines sprawling rose bushes decked out in pink flowers, and the high-pitched rattle of spotted nutcrackers. I'd occasionally spot one of the nutcrackers atop a pine tree. The path in the forest or fields was mostly level, so that as we went on, the river slowly rose up to meet us. Then we came to a forested slope that was nearly vertical, and we descended steeply again to meet the water. Until I sat down to write this account, I'd forgotten how immensely enjoyable those first few days of walking in Humla were, that joy obscured by later difficulty. The enjoyment was the same for Ajahn Sumedho's party when they went this way 15 years before. Both Anne and Alison were lyrical in their praise. The sun catching a field of millet red on the opposite hillside seeing a black bear down in the valley, the noise of the river roaring past, coming across a goat train bringing salt down from Tibet, a great long train of goats, then arriving in the village and all the kids were coming out with walnuts for us, so generous and so pleased. You got the usual one asking one penny, one penny, but they were lovely kids. They were walking at the end of the season. Alison also recalled stopping after lunch and lying down in the sun on a roof where they were drying grain. They both recalled how enthusiastic Ajahn Sumedho was. Anne recalled coming to a particularly beautiful part down by the river, sitting there and him saying, you know, it doesn't get any better than this, Anne. And then he recited that poem, the Blake one, you know. He who binds himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Andrew recalled receiving that affirmation too. He kept saying to me, Well done, Andrew. This is wonderful. Ajahn Samedo is good at that. 
Anne also enjoyed the group sitting together in the mornings in one of the tents. I don't recall much actual meditation, but the monk's chanting was lovely, and I remember the atmosphere with the glowing lamp and the pendant. The group also had a daily sharing each evening. It was a fin thing, Andrew explained. How did the day go for you? How are you feeling? Where do we stop for lunch tomorrow? That kind of thing. It was all very harmonious. Michael didn't come to the morning sittings. He had his own practice, and he wasn't keen on joining the sharings. But that was fine. We were all getting on well. Did you all walk together? Well, I'd said as a policy I thought we should walk behind Arjun. So we go at his pace. Walk as a group. But right from the start, Sugato completely ignored that. He shot off. He was always way off in front. I thought as the junior monk he would be with Arjun. But me, David and Anne, we stayed with him. Alison wasn't there either. She mostly walked to the back, she told me, to be on her own and enjoy the wonderful scenery. That's what I did on our walk up through Humla. I suspect I might also have had a problem with those daily Findhorn sharings. <laughs> Rory struggled for the first few days. He's a large young man with a slight shuffling gait and clothes that always seem to be slipping off his overweight form. In fact, he looks like someone totally unsuitable for the mountains he so loves. However, rather like the children's cartoon character Kung Fu Panda, he has hidden depths and in the mountains can be impressively adroit. But here in the lower hills, he was a lumbering bear out of his habitat. Too hot, sweating profusely, and still suffering from the effects of his sleepless night in Nepalgunj. I suspected he was also dehydrated, as he felt nauseous every time he tried to eat, and so ate little. Apamado also had nausea, and a constant slight migraine. But the two of them were the youngsters in our party so despite their difficulties, they easily kept up. Something not so easy for me, even though I felt fine. At the end of the first day, Indra sent one of the porters back to help me, but I gently refused to give over my bag, and then, when I got to our camp, explained how I liked to walk alone like that, particularly at the end of the day, when an encounter with wildlife was most likely. There was no need for Indra's concern, and I didn't want a young porter trailing after me. But if truth be told, I was also struggling. I'd needed to go at that slower pace. The second evening I arrived last and alone after a long final climb, the hardest so far, done on jelly-like legs. There I found we were camping with a Tibetan tribal family. 
we were now amidst the Bodhya, one of the tribes who descended long ago from the Tibetan plateau into Nepal's upper Himalayan valleys. That morning we'd still been passing through Takarai communities, although at breakfast we'd been told the small clearings with a few houses higher up the valley sides belonged to a Tibetan people. In the afternoon, those valley sides had grown more precipitous and were still covered in their natural dense forest. Our path descended, squeezed between the steep slope and the river, which rushed beside us over its bed of boulders, grey-green with silt and turbulence, its roar mingling with the song of nightingales. In places, the path had been cut into rock cliffs, with fine waterfalls descending over fern and moss-greened walls, and once passing under a large overhanging Philadelphias, covered in white blossom and strewn with its white petals. Then, most spectacularly, a way had been crudely cut into the side of a huge vertical cliff jutting out over the water, with steps that we climbed bent forward to avoid snagging ourselves on the roof. Via those steps the path clambered out of the river's defile and then went on upwards, a long hard climb before levelling out in the clearing on a slope not quite as steep as the rest, with a few boatier houses. The buildings themselves were much the same as those further down the valley. Rock walls of brown-orange stone interrupted every few feet by horizontal pine trunks traversing the full length of the wall with a flat mud roof, perhaps a couple of windows beside the door, and a stovepipe emerging from the roof, or from a small side window. The back of the house was often built into the slope, as was the house our party had stopped at. Some of the Bhotia are Hindu, but this family was definitely Buddhist. Our host, Ajahn told me, had been listening to a Dharma talk by the local monastery's head lama on his mobile phone when they arrived. His mobile phone was now quietly playing Tibetan music. I recognised the loping rhythms as he stood respectfully to one side, gazing at his new guests sitting on the bench in front of his house. He was a small, scrawny man, skin burnt as brown, as those of the people down the valley. But he had a slightly broader face, more Mongolian. The Bhotia have always been treated as low caste by the people of the lower hills, and this family was certainly the poorest we had stayed with so far. They had no rice or barley, Indra told us, only buckwheat, no chickens, so there would be no eggs, and no cow, so there would be no milk. They were devout, relying on the sense of the spiritual to ease their daily burden. The man's mobile phone next played Buddhist monks chanting at the local monastery, and both he and his wife whispered along as they went about their tasks. She had returned with a pile of greenery wrapped in a shawl on her back to make our breakfast subji but also with two gashed cuts on her hand. Apamado, ever concerned for others, had noticed and produced our medical kit which he carried. He asked Chris to treat her, 
She seemed softened and pleased by the concern as Chris bathed and covered her cuts, as she whispered along with the chant all the while. Later, having erected his tent, Ajahn Amaro was sitting on the front bench looking at the map, our host standing quietly nearby. Ajahn tried pointing out and naming places. Our host nodded enthusiastically at each name, repeating it to show his familiarity with the places we had passed through, then with those we'd go to next, up the valley, then those into Tibet, and finally the Kora round Kailash. He knew all of them. When Indra came out, he was able to translate. Our host had done the Kora himself eight times. Later, we sat there quietly with him, in the fading light, me pumping water through our filter to the rhythm of his mobile phone's chant, all of us gazing out at the forested mountainside and the snowy peaks above and beyond. In the half-light, a black bear ambled fast down a patch of snow on the hill opposite before disappearing back into forest. Indra, our guide, was Tamang, another Tibetan-related tribe who lived further to the east, in the high mountain valleys along the border above Kathmandu, as well as some of the high hills just to the west of the capital. I'd been amongst his people when walking through central Nepal with Ajahn Suchito, and already knew they have a similar poor existence. The altitude we were now at is too high to grow rice or wheat, so they live on barley, millet and buckwheat as their staples. They also graze yaks and goats in degraded forest and spend long winters waiting for the snow to melt. But as Indra pointed out, at least his people live near Kathmandu, where they can find work as mountain guides and porters, while these boat here were a long way from anywhere. This family lived on particularly poor land, he told us. It was too steep to terrace properly, so the soils were thin. The crops growing around us were stunted and patchy. Such a poor but devout house felt a good place to stay. Indra said our host felt so honoured to have the monks, they'd said payment wasn't necessary. Not that he would listen to that. That night the family was further blessed by having Ajahn Amro sleep above them on their earthen roof, one of the few flat places for our tents. The next morning we had buckwheat pancakes with our vegetable subji. Mine was more like a very large flattened dumpling than a pancake, but still welcome. We ate, sitting outside on the bench again, as the valley took on light. The snow-covered tip of a mountain showed above the still darkened ridges, lit cream with the sun's first rays. Rory told us it must be a 7,000 metre plus peak to have caught the sun like that. Perhaps Sayapal Himal. Before he came, he'd studied their names and positions, hoping to tick them off. The track was benign that day, flat and sandy underfoot, 
winding in and out of the valley's creases. Through these cultivated clearings, its upper side to our right had flattened white flowering cotton ester grazed into an undulating small wall. Within its gnarly protection, delicate plants grew, their tiny colourful flowers often poking out on long stalks. The fields were of barley, feathered heads starting to plump up, catching the sun as they waved in the dry wind. There were occasional hawthorn or amelanchia bushes amidst the fields, and sparrows and other small birds flitted about before it got too hot. But most of the time we were walking in woodland, now with tall pines and an understory of juniper, partially cleared by wandering yak and zole, a cross between yak and cow, grazing at tufts of vegetation. We passed two men sawing a section of pine trunk along its length with a two-handed saw. The trunk had been rolled onto a crude platform made of branches, so that one man could stand beneath, while the other stood atop the trunk, pulling the saw between them, back and forth. Several other sections of trunk lay nearby, waiting their turn. Further on, we could see how they built these platforms anew for each felling, rather than move the sections of trunk. Most people we passed were locals, working in the fields or walking to their homes. We met few other travellers, only people from further up the valley making their way to Simicot, carrying a large sack of produce on their back or their personal belongings in a bundle. Only twice did we pass laden mules and never the large trains of pack animals carrying produce down from Tibet that Colin Thurbrun and others describe. We were too early in the season, travelling in late May in the hope the high passes would be open in time for us to cross. Travelling so early because Ajahn Amro had a meeting of abbots to attend in Thailand in June. When I arranged the journey, Roger reckoned the effects of global warming would ensure our passage. But when we met in Kathmandu, he told us the winter's snows had been exceptional. The passes were still blocked, so that a German party had been forced to fly in the red and white helicopter. We could still try walking, he said. Maybe by the time we got there, the passes would be open. But it would be better to take the helicopter, like the Germans. But then Sangi Lama reported news from his brother. The first pilgrims had arrived at their monastery that day from over the pass. The passes could be traversed, but only on foot, and they were very difficult. So now we journeyed in the hope that the difficulty would have eased by the time we passed over them. Descending the precipitous northern side through deep snowdrifts would not be fun. But so far we'd met no one who'd come that way to ask. Late morning we climbed down into a pine-forested gorge to cross a tributary of the Karnali on a swinging metal suspension bridge. At the bottom of the gorge everything was on a grand scale. Giant boulders, towering spruces with their hanging branches swishing above needle-carpeted ground, a wide track leading to the bridge 
and tall bright green poplars standing sentinel along the main river. With disturbed six vultures sitting on a cliff ledge across the roaring water. They took flight on laboured wings, climbing to turn on a thermal, their vast wings outstretched. There was also, incongruously, a rusting yellow bulldozer at the start of a road. How had that ever got here? We climbed back out of the gorge on the dirt road. When the main valley opened out before us, the slopes were less steep. There were grass meadows with grazing horses by the river, larger terraced fields, few trees and many more houses. And we could see Yalbang, our destination in the distance. We knew it must be Yalbang because of a large white Tibetan stupa standing on a promontory in front of the largest group of buildings, its white plaster matching the snow peaks beyond. Presumably, the buildings were the monastery, Namka Kyangjong. As each chanting monk twisted his upright hand drum in time to the deep beat of the main drum, the turquoise drum faces flashed in a row together, lit by the shaft of light coming through the temple's large open door. The colour, surely chosen because of this, was the triangulated opposite of the deep ruby and the bright yellow of the monk's robes. The line of flashing turquoise startled in the gloom of the temple. Off, on, off, on, off, on. Two double rows of monks faced each other as they chanted their deep, resonating homage. The words so familiar that their chanting books were now set aside, each monk twisting his right hand to work his drum in the gloom. Boom. Boom, 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 boom. The tiered altar flickered with the light from butter lamps, revealing half-seen Vajrayana images in various contorted poses. As one monk, standing between the others but facing the altar, performed an elaborate offering, prostrating full length before shuffling forward with bowl, then silk scarf, then other objects all the while the temple resonating with the chant and the hypnotic rhythm. Boom, 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 boom. The lay people lining the temple walls, women in traditional garb, young men in jeans and t-shirts, were now rising to join the bowing. Hands held palms together and pushed above their head. They bowed, knelt and then prostrated full length face down, hands sweeping out before them on the dusty floor. Their movements in time to the chant. Boom, 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 boom. The total effect made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. This was the culmination of three days of homage, during which the monks had fasted, 
kept silent by the endless chanting, and then for the last day also refrained from drinking. Now they had eaten Sampa, quaffed yak butter tea, and were celebrating the birth, death and enlightenment of the Buddha. Sakadawa for the Tibetans, Visaka Puja for us Theravadans. The full moon of May, the most important celebration in the Buddhist calendar. Then suddenly it stopped. Silence. Two trumpets, long to the floor, and held two-handed by the monk seated nearest the door, sounded the deep tone of foghorns. Hand drums were lowered, and instead small trumpets, made from human thigh bones, were brought to the lips of the more senior monks, including the two Rinpoches, seated higher at the altar end of each row. Then the monks were off on another chant, a different rhythm, more syncopated, and with the adornment this time of their thigh-bone trumpet blasts, the crash of two sets of cymbals, occasional blasts of the two long trumpets, and other shorter ones, along with the deep beat of the main drum. We'd arrived at the temple the day before, our Theravada monks having adjusted their dress and tidied themselves for the encounter. We'd also had our meal at a tea house down the hill to avoid any problems that our monks' rule of not eating after midday might cause. Indra surpassed himself by doing most of the cooking while the proprietress consoled her distraught baby, then taking over the baby-holding duties. Expectant, we'd climbed the last of the slope, wondering which of the large municipal-looking buildings we were passing might be part of the monastery. It turned out they all were. And considering where we might camp, as Sangi Lama had said, there'd only be a room for our monks. We passed the white stupa and entered the monastery's main gates. The temple was before us, set at the back of a courtyard created by two wings of accommodation for the Tibetan monks, the traditional layout that goes back to the first Buddhist monasteries. All was quiet. No one stirred. We mounted the steps to the temple and entered. Flickering butter lamps sat before a giant golden Buddha image in the gloom. Then, as my eyes adjusted, I made out other images lower down the shrine, elaborate colour-filled murals on the walls, and sitting at their base, along the back and sides of the temple, old Tibetan women dozing or fitfully twirling prayer wheels. As we knelt to bow to the Buddha between the empty benches meant for the monks, I noticed that three rows back, novices were lying on their backs, some sleeping, others playing with things, and some, having noticed us, now sitting up. After we had bowed, Ajahn Amaro commented, It's just like the festivals in northeast Thailand. It's break time, and everyone's having a snooze. By now, all the novices were watching us closely, although still none of them spoke, just nudging each other and pointing. Eventually a young monk entered the temple, summoned presumably by someone, 
and asked us in halting English to follow him. He took us to what must be the refectory for senior monks. Benches with cushions lined the wall, with several short tables set before each. Taking out much of one corner was a giant copper pot, wisps of steam escaping from beneath a battered lid, set on an earthen stove, being fed with long thin sticks by a middle-aged Tibetan woman. A few monks sat mutely on the benches. Only our young host spoke, arranging for tea to be poured directly from a giant copper kettle which had taken the place of the pot, then offering food, which we declined, and apologising for his limited English. He had sufficient English, however, to tell us the monastery had a hundred and ninety monks, including novices, and that Rinpoche would see us that afternoon, but not until three when he received visitors. Until then his time was for personal practice, a concept he had to mime with hand movements and mumbled chanting. When we returned to the temple, the Tibetan monks were in full deep voice, reciting a text from a stack of long-in-width loose pages, which they turned over, away from themselves, as the front was finished, to stack on a second pile while they read the back. Each monk was also performing elaborate small movements with his hands, while holding a brass bell tightly in one palm, which they rang in unison at significant points. The chants went on and on, the older monks gently rocking side to side to the rhythm, the novices getting distracted, looking about, particularly back at us sitting against the sidewall, and then returning to their task. The old ladies turned their prayer wheels and mumbled, occasionally getting up to shuffle along to the entranceway where they would do full-length prostrations towards the altar. Now one, now another, occasionally several at the same time. At some point a young man beside us introduced himself. He was a local school teacher. It was he who explained, This is third day. No food, no drink, no talk. Very hard. Which accounted for all the mute monks. Pema Rickshell Rinpoche was not mute that day, however. He was excused the fast, the secretary told us, as he was diabetic and would join the ceremony only for the last day. Instead, he was sitting on cushions at the head of his reception room, a beaming, middle-aged, slightly portly monk who seemed very happy to see us. He told us, via the secretary's translation, that he had fond memories of Ajahn Samede, a very good monk, and the long talks they'd had. His understanding was so good. He inquired after our journey, told us that we were most welcome, and should we have difficulty getting into Tibet, then we should return and stay for as long as we wished. He then wanted to know from Ajahn Amro about Ajahn's connections with Tibetan Buddhism, which his brother Sangi Lama had mentioned. As Ajahn explained, Rinpoche too was deeply impressed. Oh, this is my root teacher. Then, hmm, this is my tradition. Then, hmm, this is my own teacher. 
And finally, mm, You are teaching with great Dokshan, Master. He became so impressed, he wanted Ajahn to read a book just published in the United States of his translated teachings. You can tell me how it is, how to make better. This led to talk of the problems his Nyingma tradition was having in the West, where they do many bad things. Vajrayana teachings and empowerments were being given out of context so that people were harming themselves and others. He explained how this was a problem throughout the Tibetan tradition. Forgetting the importance of morality and good actions as a base for practice. He'd recently been to Thailand and admired the morality of the monks there and the emphasis on that in the Theravadan teachings. But they are not practicing view, no meditation. Ajahn Amro agreed with him. Our teacher said this is like having a garden, planting vegetables and fruit trees, then not eating the produce. But in his forest tradition, which is less than 5% of the monks in Thailand, the emphasis is on meditation practice, not study. Oh, very good, very good. Rinpoche also liked the fact monks in Thailand could leave whenever they wanted. Vajrayana monks make life vow. They are unhappy, they stay. They make everyone unhappy. We were only with him for an hour before he said his duties called and we should come again tomorrow when the festival was over and we could have more time to talk Dharma. As we left, we met his duties for that day, standing at the gate of his compound, a line of lay Tibetans waiting patiently for an audience, each holding a kata, a white silk offering scarf. During this festival, many would have travelled a long way. In the temple that day, the ceremony continued, occasionally interspersed with the crash of cymbals or the deep bellow of the long trumpets. But mostly it was hour after hour of the monks chanting, with just the occasional tinkle of their bells, the effect hypnotic, but also deadening of any thought. I did rouse myself once to encourage Rory in the taking of photographs. Although the scene was photogenic, he was so concerned not to cause offence that he hardly dared move from his seat. When it all ended, the school teacher leant over to tell us our campsite had been arranged and we were to follow him. By then, the novices had stampeded for the door before us, hurriedly pulling on their robes as they went, leaving the older monks calmly folding away their chanting texts wrapping each set in a cloth and storing it beneath their desks. As we left, the women began a group circumambulation of the temple outside, singing a lilting chant together and spinning their prayer wheels. The teacher led us past the Rinpoche's compound to stone steps before a door in another wall. Through the door, the steps climbed further to a large, flat garden, recently planted with rose bushes, and a new lawn on which our tents had been pitched by the porters, 
who were now standing proudly beside them. Beyond them was a recently renovated house, grand by the standards of those we'd seen so far. We reckoned it must be meant for the Rinpoche. Perhaps he was about to move here. But whatever it was, it made a fabulous campsite for us. The newly sown lawn was soft and flat, and the raised ground had views across the valley. Later, while adjusting my tent at dusk, a light came on in the entrance hall of the house, and a monk appeared at the door. He indicated for me to come over. I realised, as I approached, that this was the young monk we'd seen in the refectory, sitting on his own. He was chubby, dressed in new robes, and was treated there with diffidence by the other young monks. I'd had a sense then of loneliness, and wondered who he was. He now indicated for me to follow him, showed me where the light switch was, then took me through to a bathroom, which had a toilet, shower and sink, and pointed at me and them. Ah, I understood, nodded, said thank you, and then returned to the tents to tell the others. Talking it over, we reckoned that he must be a young Rinpoche, and this was his house and garden, which we now had the use of. That night, lying in my tent, I recalled Stephen Batchelor telling me about how Rinpoches were usually in pairs in Tibet. I'd asked him about his visit in October 1984, when the Chinese first opened Tibet to travellers. So did you visit monasteries there? We were in the gorge, splashing through the river, with shallow water flowing fast over shining, multicoloured round stones. Yes, and it was a real eye-opener after my time with the Tibetans outside Tibet. Naively, I'd ask, how many lamas are there in the monastery? And they'd say two. But there'd be hundreds of monks running around. I came to understand that every monastery supports two lines of reincarnate lamas. Lama actually means reincarnate. So, say you have a monastery with a thousand monks, you'd have two lam-ram, or households, which would be the residents of the Tukuls, who are referred to with the honorific Rinpoche. And they'd be like little aristocrats, with a standard of living way above that of the average monk. You'd have monks like my teacher, Geshe Rapton. When he was young, he was near to starving. And you'd have two Torku in the same monastery, living like lords, with servants and cooks and secretaries. And they would have properties outside the monastery. Farms, estates, which would generate income. So the monastery was also the social nexus, which supported a feudal system within it. The Torku's spiritual wealth resides in the fact they are lineage holders of certain tantric traditions, so they'd give initiations every now and again when the lay people, and even other monks, would make offerings in gratitude for receiving these initiations. The initiations were the capital that the monastery ran on. Those big monasteries in Tibet seem like universities to me, I said. Was that the outcome of the emphasis in later Buddhism on the teacher and his teachings? So then, in turn, the teachings had to get more special to bring in the support for all the student monks, 
and then the teachers needed to be reincarnated to keep the income coming in. Or is that too simplistic? No, that's not simplistic. The whole monastery survived that way. In the old days, before 1959, every seven years the Tolku and his entourage would go off on long tours for one or two years with trains of yaks. They'd go from village to town, often ending up in China. Everywhere they went, they'd give initiations, and in return people would offer bags of barley, gold jewellery, money or whatever. When they returned, this income would pass down into the monastic system. And a monastery had to have two tolkos, so they were likely to always have one adult to earn the money. The tolkos who escaped Tibet, and of course most of them did because they were the elite, were then divorced from their monasteries. So it was only when I went there that I understood how it all worked. Tibetan lamas outside of Tibet still do tours today, but now it's Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, giving these initiations to hundreds of people, mostly Chinese, and getting huge amounts of money which they use to support their own entourage, their own lifestyle, but also to fund their monastery and other institutions. Some of them use initiation tours to fund charity work in Tibet, so it's not all self-gain. But that's how the economics of it works, by and large, and throughout Tibet's history, the main source of revenue has been the Chinese. Next morning we were summoned to the temple by the deep reverberating blast of two monks blowing into large white conch shells. When I arrived, all the other monks, including ours, were already inside, but the women were standing in a group beside the entrance. So I hung back to see what would happen, standing beside the two trumpeteers who waited with their conch shells held before them. Then the wooden door in the compound wall swung open, and as Pema Rikshel Rinpoche emerged, the conch shells blasted a long greeting, which continued as he and his small entourage crossed the compound, with the women now singing the same undulating tune they had the previous evening. Rinpoche passed them, nodding a greeting, touching a few of their bowed heads as a blessing, and entered the temple followed by his entourage and then by the still-singing women. Myself and the two monks, now without their conch shells, brought up the rear. The ceremony went on for most of the day. Some of it, like the turquoise drums, was really spectacular, but much was just more of the endless chanting. After some chant that had seemed particularly significant, there was a stop for breakfast brought round in galvanised buckets and doled out by novices with galvanised ladles. We were given bowls into which they slopped barley stew with little bits of meat and a skin of rancid butter. Now all can eat and talk, commented the teacher next to us, rather unnecessarily, 
above the noise of the chatting novices. During the break for lunch, provided for all in another building, six images of bodhisattvas were carried in, each with a piece of red cloth tied to cover their eyes, followed by trays with elaborate sculptured offerings made of coloured butter. The returning monks first made their way along the altar to admire all this, many having their photo taken in front of them using their smartphones, which helped Rory with his photography shyness. Mid-afternoon there was a sudden roar outside and a whirlwind of dust at the door, followed by a downpour of enormous hailstones driving the people out in the courtyard running into the porch's shelter. It lasted only 15 minutes, but left the entire courtyard glistening with a layer of white beads. Later, the monastic ceremony came to a crescendo too, with everyone, monks, laypeople and us, flinging barley grains in all directions, so that the floor inside was similarly covered. Our monks felt obliged to sit there through all this ceremony. A small line of Theravada ochre amidst all that ruby red. But Chris, Rory and I took several long breaks, climbing the hillside behind the monastery to sit under a tree and enjoy the view across the valley. The temples chanting now a quiet murmur, no louder than the birdsong around us. After the puja was over, we met Pema Riksha Rinpoche again, now with a better translator and another brother, this one with long black hair tied in a ponytail and only partial monastic clothes. He'd also been in the puja that day, promoted above the other monks despite being a layman. With the translator there, Rinpoche could give us a discourse on what Dogshem was and was not. He quoted instances of people believing they knew Dogshan when they did not and offered a formula for recognising it with lines like If there is light, this is not Dogshan. But when he stated that Dogshan was something that Theravada did not know, Ajahn Amaro told him how Ajahn Samedo had spent the last 15 years teaching nothing else but the use of pure awareness. When Ajahn Samedo visited America, Tibetan Buddhist practitioners told him, You're teaching Dogshan, to which he replied, I don't know what Dogshan is, but if you say so, that's fine by me. Ajahn told Rinpoche that he liked his book, which somehow, amazingly, he'd managed to read most of, presumably through the night. He commented that it had little self in it, unlike some others. During their conversation, an old Tibetan man came in to pay respects before leaving to travel home, prostrating and shuffling forward to offer a kata to be touched on the head as a blessing and draped with a scarf. We also heard more of their family history. I can't recall now what was told to us then or earlier by Sangi Lama in Kathmandu, but their father, a Nyingma Turkun named Degyo Rinpoche, was descended both by reincarnation and family line from teachers who had come to hold sway in the Tibetan plain and valleys to the south of Mount Kailash. <laughs> 
with many disciples who practiced as hermits in remote caves. It was the father who conceived of re-establishing their main monastery over the border in Nepal, away from Chinese suppression, in what previously had been a peripheral area of their influence, but now had many Tibetan refugees. He sent both boys to be trained by Trollshik Rinpoche at the monastery on the hill we visited by mistake, who, unusually for the Nyingma part, was a monk and was trying to re-establish monasticism within their tradition. While they were young, their father had become too ill himself to set up a monastery, so Pemel Riksha Rinpoche had taken this on as his duty, with Sangi Lama doing all that was needed in Kathmandu, including setting up their own website. On that website, one can now view pictures of the monastery and be informed about all its various activities. There was none of this when Ajahn Sumedha visited, only the just-completed temple. Afterwards, I asked Ajahn Amro what he thought of the reincarnation of Tibetan teachers. He said he had no problem with it. Perhaps they really were reincarnated. Or if not... The system worked well for their tradition, producing some great teachers, like the Dalai Lama. But as with anything else, it was open to abuse. The Dalai Lama has often hinted at how much corruption there is. With so much money and power, there's a lot of temptation when recognising a tulku like the monk in the book Fire Under the Snow, who spent 33 years in prison by the Chinese, being tortured, without ever wishing them harm. He was a simple farm boy who had all the auspicious signs. But then the local lord of the manor had his son made the reincarnated lama. Ah, I see what you mean. And if you're a reincarnated lama, and a layman, it must be very tempting to look at your son. <laughs>